Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, I got a question for you. Okay. If I were to give you $10, mm-hmm. just a $10 bill, and I'd say, Molly, I'm giving you this $10. And you know what? You can do two things with this $10 bill. You can keep all of it, take yourself out for a nice lunch. Mm-hmm. Well, not too nice. Take yourself out <laughs> for a $10 lunch. Or I have this really great charity. Uh, let's say I have this pet adoption charity. I have, hmm. I have orphaned pets. You can give me some of that money that I can help out orphaned pets, and you can just keep the rest. Hmm. What would you like to do with that $10? It's, um, you know, there are many issues that immediately come to my mind that will... That will play out in this podcast because because uh, we're talking about charitable giving today, Kristen. right? And, and the number one question you probably ask yourself was, "How hungry am I? How much do I want a ten dollar lunch?" <laughs> That's true. That's going to play into it. If I was going to give to your charity, I'd want to learn a lot more about what your charity did, how you ran it, where these animals were coming from, and where they were going. And you don't trust that I'm just going to take your money and feed orphaned animals that you know, I take care of. Kristen, as we're going to talk about, women need to know a lot about a charity before they're going to give to it. So okay. you're going to have to be ready for me to ask a lot of questions. All right. I all might right. want to come by and see the animals. Hey, I we can do that. We can so, set, up a, set up a play date with my orphaned animals. So that's definitely going to be an issue. And also playing into this, as we're going to see, is the fact that you, a fellow lady, are standing there watching me decide what to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our society, in most societies, giving is a very uh, honorable thing to do. Yes. And I don't want to be seen in a bad light if, you know, you've got this orphaned animal charity. So that's definitely going to play into my decision making also. And I'm not alone in this. We're going to talk about several studies where uh, women have had to evaluate what they're going to do with that $10 when there's another woman there, mm-hmm. when there's a man there. When there's no one there and uh, pretty interesting findings about how men and women give to charity differently. 
Now, when it comes to whether or not men and women give more money, who, who's the most charitable, which is the most charitable sex? The evidence is pretty clear. Yes. In recent years, it has become women by an astronomical amount. We win. We give Huzzah. a lot more money to charity. That doesn't mean that we give in the same way. Women are more likely to give small donations to a bunch of charities, whereas men are more likely to give one big lump sum to one charity. And men might be more inclined to give one large lump sum because research on charitable giving also finds that men are more motivated to donate because of the influence that they might get in return mm-hmm. and also the recognition. So clearly a gift of say $1,000 to one charity might get them more recognition than uh, donations of $100 to 10 different charities. Right. And women are more likely to do a lot, as I as I've made reference to when I was thinking about Kristen's charity, they're more likely to do a lot of research on the charities they're going to donate to. And, whereas men, you know, if they have identified a need, they're more likely to throw the money at the charity and sort of be done with it and not follow up with where their money went or how that money is spent. So from a nonprofit's perspective, women can be more difficult donors to cultivate. But once they build that relationship and really get the message and mission of their organization across to a female donor, she tends to be far more likely and will give in different ways. It's not just going to be monetary donations. She might donate her time, donate other types of resources, get them in contact with other people. And I thought it was interesting that uh, when we were reading information about kind of how to cultivate female donors um, from a nonprofit's perspective, they highly encourage organizations to use words and phrases that are supposed to resonate with women, such as, Connect, collaborate, create, partner, involve. And, you know, the reason all this research has been done on the ways men and women give differently, um, how they're likely to give, what words are going to appeal to them, is obviously particularly in troubled economic times, charities are even uh, more at risk of going under, of not being able to fulfill their mission. And so it's interesting to see in a time like this if men and women give differently. And they've done a lot of studies where uh, they'll look at, ways men give versus ways women give. And one thing that they've noticed is that men are more likely to give when there's like a tax donation Mm -hmm. that could be associated with it or when there's going to be a matching donor who's going to make their donation go a little bit farther. Whereas women are more likely to give even when giving is costly to them in terms of not getting the tax donation, not getting the matched donor. Uh, they still feel that giving is important even when it may not be in their best economic interest to give. And we're not just talking about wealthy people who are donating here. Uh, women with annual incomes of less than $10,000 who might have kids at home as well still give an average of 5.4% of their adjusted gross income to charity. So this is pretty, pretty great news, I think. It's wonderful that there are so many people out there who uh, want to give and help others. But, you know, we're not just trying to throw out all these statistics to be like, oh, man, women are so awesome. Men are so nice. Men are so crazy. Um, <laughs> what's actually interesting, what we're going to get into now is how women and men influence, influence each other when they need to decide how much money to give to a charity. And this, to me, is where some of the most interesting research has been done around this issue of charitable giving. So let's say you're married. And it comes the time of the year when you, maybe toward the end of the year, 
when you want to donate some money to some charities. Mm -hmm. What do married couples do in terms of deciding on a charity, how much they're going to donate, because they might come at it from different angles. A guy might want to, say, donate to the Red Cross, where a woman might want to donate to, say, care. Right. What happens? Well, for the answer to that, we're going to turn to James Andrioni, Eleanor Brown, and Isaac Rischel, who did a study called Charitable Giving by Married Couples. Who decides and why does it matter? And they did these surveys and they said, in your household, who makes the decision about where to give? Husband, wife, or do you do it together? And uh, according to the survey, 53% of married couples decide about charitable giving together. 19% say that the husband alone decides. And 28% say that the wife decides. And this is usually linked with um, how much income each person is bringing into the household. If the male is the sole uh, economic provider for the family, he has greater decision-making powers. If the wife's bringing more money in, she tends to make the decision. But what they want to look at is if these couples were working together to decide, if they you're know, thinking, hey, we've got you know, $2,000 to give to charity. Uh, we like these four charities. How do they make that decision of how to divvy up the money? And what's kind of surprising is that if you're making the decision together, the men tend to influence the women more than the women influence the men. Which is kind of surprising because women, like we've said, tend to be more altruistic. Mm -hmm. And yet the husband's decisions will typically win out. But if there's some kind of conflict, if they really have to hash out this donation issue, how how much they're going to give to where, that hurts the amount of giving that they do in the end, typically by about 6%. percent mm-hmm. So this is something that charities are trying to keep in mind when they're trying to appeal to you. If you're married, they know that they've got a really, you know, not to sound predatory about it, but they know they've really got to get the hooks in the wife uh, if she's going to have that soul-making decision power. Whereas if the woman's married, it's going to be a little bit harder for her to allocate funds to the charity. Mm-hmm. But... This research was contradicted by some other research we found that I think is really interesting, too. So let's talk about that study and how it kind of is just going to confuse what a charity should do at all. And this study comes from the Journal of Feminist Economics. Mm-hmm. It's called Altruism and Individual and Joint Giving Decisions. What's gender got to do with it? Now, this is unmarried couples in some uh, and they may not even be in a romantic relationship. These mm-hmm. are, may just be a random stranger. Yeah. So what they do is um, they basically do what Kristen did at the beginning of the episode. They give uh, a group of participants $10 and say, you can go out to lunch or buy yourself a book or whatever, or you can give this $10 to the Red Cross. And what they do is all the participants are supposed to go off in a little corner where no one could see them, and they could write on an envelope, I'm giving you know $5 to the Red Cross, and I'm keeping $5, or I'm giving all the $10 to the Red Cross, or I'm keeping all the $10 And they collected all the envelopes and they found that, as you might expect, the women were more likely to give more to the Red Cross and to give all of their money to the Red Cross. Right. There was a 44 percent gender difference, which is pretty, pretty huge in terms of how much the individual men and women gave. On average, men would give four dollars and ninety one cents of that ten dollars to the Red Cross, whereas the women tended to give $7.07. Pretty generous. But so then they were like, surprise, there's another round to this. And they put them into pairs. Some pairs were male-female, some were male-male, and some were Mm female-female. 
And they said, here's another $10 for each of you. Now this, now a couple has $20. Uh, are you going to keep it? Are you going to give it to the Red Cross? And together they would go off and decide what they would do with their $20. So as the men and women are hashing this out, keep in mind that men tend to be more selfish and want to keep more of the money, whereas women tend to want to give the money away. So where do those two effects meet in the middle? Well, women's altruism seems to have a greater effect on the men than the men's stinginess might have on the giving women. And what I mean by that is that men would tend to donate more money than they normally would once they are collaborating with the women. Now, when women are having to collaborate with the men, they do become slightly less altruistic. They don't give quite as much money, but it's not as much of a drop. Right. And female-female matchups, uh, they pretty much gave around the same amount they gave the first round. Male-male mm-hmm. matchups, they didn't tend to give that much more than they gave in the first round. They stayed pretty low on the donation side. But the gender-mixed pairs ended up being the most generous of all of the matchups, followed then by the female-females. Now, when two guys got together, hey, I mean, it's like two Scrooge McDucks <laughs> hanging out. I mean, they're not, I mean, self, you threw out the word selfish, Kristen, and I don't want to rub anyone the wrong way. That's the term that the researchers are using to denote someone who is least likely to give the funds. But they say, you know, this is interesting. Women can really influence those men in the male-female partnerships to give more, even though their own giving may be dropping. Mm -hmm. So I feel like if you, um, and and again, it's, it's not an apples to apples comparison with the other study we just talked about. Because these aren't romantic relationships deciding to make this decision together. And it's possible that the men wanted to impress the women. Well, yes, that might be attributed to something the researchers call the social information effect. It's basically once you know that you're being judged for Mm -hmm. your decision and you have the input from someone else about what you should or shouldn't do, that tends to sway your final decision. Whereas once you get married and you're in that other study, the first study about the husbands having greater sway, then you may have more similar ideas about charitable giving. And it may not be um, so crazy that the husband's desires went out over a female's desires. But again, if, if the feminist economic study is holding out, maybe these men in married relationships are giving more than they would have if they were single. Mm-hmm. So now that we understand this interesting interplay between giving and gender and how we are perceived because of based on how much we are uh, donating to charities, what's the real world application of all of these dictator game scenarios that these economists have played out in the classroom? Well, you know, like I said, it's tough times. Everyone wants to make sure that their own charity gets funds. And so, This is definitely going to influence the way that charities market themselves to you. But I think it's also um, important to think about your own giving and how you can influence those around you. Uh, Another thing that women are really known for is giving in groups. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll get together and pool money and think that, well, you know, with this larger collection of money, we can make more of a difference. Um, and just having that conversation, well, you know, we've talked before on the podcast, Chris, about how no one really likes to discuss money right. with romantic partner, but sitting down, having that discussion of, you know, how much money do we have to give? Where do we want to give it? Can we compromise on how we're going to give it? And I think one of the coolest uh, things I read while we were researching this podcast about charitable giving is how you can influence your own children mm-hmm. to give more. And it was, a, there's one really cool idea where you just give a kid $50 for the year and say, you know, split it up how you'd like among 
among charities that interest you. And I think back to what you asked me about your uh, orphaned animal charity. My Crippled Critters. Oh, now you didn't tell me that name. That's going to influence my decision. Congress Crippled Critters. I mean, are you really going to deny? I do love that? alliteration. Yeah. Um, so you would have to know a little bit about uh, how much I'd want to know about the business. And mm-hmm. and I think that knowing that you might judge me and knowing that you've got these poor critters that I'm concerned about, I think that maybe uh, I could do some good by getting the word out and by giving you my $10. Yeah, do you want to feed yourself or maybe a dog with three legs, Molly? You make that decision. I won't, I won't judge you. Fun fact, women do give to animal-related charities far more than men do. Yeah, we do love giving to animals. So uh, we have talked before on the podcast about the organization CARE, and we've mm-hmm. also talked about the organization CoEd, which uh, our friends over at Stuff You Should Know, they went to Guatemala and worked with CoEd. Uh, raising literacy awareness in Guatemala. Those are two causes that both Krista and I really like. And we'd love to hear from you guys about where your charitable dollars go, causes you feel passionately about. And so how do you guys make that decision, what to give, where to give? Uh, do you have any influence over your partner? Do you have any influence over your friends? What should charities know about you? Yeah, and also decisions not to give because there have been certain organizations that you might not want to donate your money to. So I do have some qualms about the, the Congress crippled critters. I'm not going to lie. Hey now, Molly. Why am I just now hearing about it, Chris? Just, you know, I've been, I've been filing for my, uh, 501c3 nonprofit status. So it's just taking a little while <laughs> to get through all the red tape. <laughs> anyway, send us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com and let's read a couple of those listener emails. This is from Heather. It's about our TMJ podcast. And she writes, I'm a physical therapist. While most people think of physical therapy as a treatment only for injured athletes, people with knees, shoulder, neck, or back problems, and patients who are in the hospital or who have surgery, most physical therapists have had education and training related to disorders and treatments of the temporomandibular joint. In fact, many dentists, who are usually the first healthcare professionals to hear about or diagnose TMJ disorders, refer their patients to physical therapists before resorting to more drastic measures such as surgery. There are many things a PT can do to address TMJ problems, including some of those mentioned in your podcast. However, we also incorporate specific exercises, hands-on treatment techniques such as joint mobilization, and modalities such as ultrasound or iontophoresis, which is a method of delivering anti-inflammatory or other medications to the painful area. Of course, every individual case is different, so the therapist will perform a thorough examination and evaluation of each patient to determine the exact nature of the problem and then design a treatment plan based on their findings. Sometimes the issue may not actually be caused by the TMJ itself, but rather the neck, shoulder, even poor posture. Conversely, headaches or neck pain may be the result of problems of the temporomandibular joint. So, for everyone out there with TMJ, Heather offers a really great alternative. See a physical therapist. All right, I've got another TMJ letter here from Meta and Meta has dealt with TMJ disorder since she was a teenager and has been researching potential therapies with much frustration. She says there are many therapies and supposed cures out there that are completely unfounded in science. There's even one clinic nearby that promises to cure TMJ disorder by running an electric current through the jaw. There's also no fun, almost no funding available for genuinely researching this fairly common problem. Is it because it straddles the line between regular medicine and dentistry? Is it because TMJ disorder is a problem that primarily affects women? Is it because there's so many different factors that contribute to it? Who knows? 
toes. It's irritating. At any rate, one thing that's worked for me is trying to practice good posture. I tend to slouch, and I've noticed that this aggravates my jaw. Now, whenever my jaw acts up, I examine my posture. Once things have progressed to a certain point, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen also help greatly, not only with pain relief, but their ability to take down inflammation around the joint. Generally, a few ibuprofen will help me if my jaw has gotten to a bad state. So thank you for the tips, Meta. And, of course, if you have any emails, send them to momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also send us a shout-out up at our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And you can read our blog during the week. It is Stuff Mom Never Told You at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.